Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. And this week, Robin is joined by uh, co-host, the excellent comedian, Beck Hill. Josie, uh, still off enjoying being a new mum. So our parade of excellent guest co-hosts continues. Before we get to the episode with Lawrence Scott, just to let you know about some live shows we have coming up, we're going to be at Space Week uh, in Hemel Hempstead, May 3rd and 4th. With Signals, our play that we are producing uh, about SETI and the search for alien life, and that's going to be followed by a talk about the search for alien life by Dallas Campbell, who you're no doubt familiar with from all his work on the BBC and being on Book Shambles as well. And then on May 4th, Universe of Music with Chris Lintott and Steve Pretty will be there as well after our two work-in-progress gigs at King's Place in London. And we have just announced this week that the Cosmic Shambles Network is very proud to present an extension of Robin's Chaos of Delight stand-up tour in the autumn. Lots of dates through November and one in December. Going all over the UK, Cardiff, Penzance, Edinburgh, Newcastle, Southampton, lots of dates. Uh, Go to the Cosmic Shambles website or robinins.com to find out where we're going to be with that show and get tickets for that. And also, obviously, Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People, which our guest co-host Beck will be one of the performers at, along with Josie and Susie Gage and Tim O'Brien and Helen Chersky and Matt Parker and lots of other people. Four nights at King's Place plus a Sunday family matinee and then two shows at the Lowry in Salford slash Manchester as well. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. None of this is possible without your continuing support on Patreon. Patreon.com slash bookshambles if you'd like to support us. means we can keep doing all of the blogs and the podcasts and the everything else. And you get extended episodes uh, by becoming a Patreon supporter as well. A dollar a month, that is the... like You can pledge as little as that or you can give us, you know... 20 grand a month if you want. If you're that way inclined, we're not going to say no. Now, on to this week's episode. Here is Robin with Beck and Lawrence. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. And uh, just a couple of things. First of all, uh, our Nine Lessons of Carols for Curious People is now on sale for London and Manchester. We're coming to Manchester for the first time and hopefully next year we're going to do Glasgow. Uh, Also, if you can in any way uh, subscribe and fund us just a little bit, that will be very useful because it allows us to pay all of our science bloggers and keep doing this show. So go and have a look at CosmicShambles.com. That's all that out of the way. So I hope you're enjoying your your treadmill, your bus, your train, your insomnia as you're listening to this. Uh, Today we're joined, we have have two guests. Josie is uh, unavailable 
And so we have uh, Beck Hill, who I last saw at Nine Lessons of Carols for yes, Curious People. Yes, that's right. Yeah, just before Christmas. Doing on-stage animation. So we'll talk a little bit about storytelling yeah. and animation. And Lawrence Scott, who I last saw in a garden in Wales. So there we go. That's up to date with where <laughs> I last saw these people. Lawrence uh, has most recent book is Picnic, comma, Lightning. And before that, The Four-Dimensional Human, which was nominated for the Samuel Johnson Prize. It didn't win, that, did it? It didn't, alas. Mm. Shortlist, but not couldn't get it over the line. But it does. But you are now. This is something I didn't know, and you might be as well, Beck. I don't know this, but Lawrence is a new generation thinker. Oh yeah. What is? Because I'm many I'm fifty, man. I'm wow. you know this is. Uh... <laughs> well, I was named such a thing in 2011, so I'm not even sure I'm still a new generation thinker. It's a scheme that Radio Three does to get young academics basically sharing their research to wider audiences. So if you can win out an X Factor style competition to get down to the last ten, you get to sort of make programs and be mentored by the lovely people at Radio 3 for a year. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, so there's a new batch just out now, another 10 new gens ready to go. We just keep coming. Oh, so it's a little bit like winning Young Novelist of the Year and then 10 years on, you think, no more. Um, yeah. yeah. Eventually, you have to sort of take it off the top banner of your CV. Gets a bit much. When it's eight years ago, new generation isn't. Yeah, I had so to fill cool. out an online CV thing yesterday and I was entering in, like, awards from 2012. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, no. Stop clinging to the past. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's too hard, long ago. That is that, that bit of when you can still keep talking about that. Because mm. by new generation thing, as long as we don't attach a year to it, it's a little bit like those dystopian movies <laughs> where they should always say in the near future and not in 1997. Yeah. yeah. So I, I remember there was a... Um, I think it was Eric Douglas, the uh, the late son of, of uh, Kirk Douglas, who, uh, on his publicity for a show he did in about 1994 in Edinburgh, uh, said, one of the faces of 1987, Faces Magazine. <laughs> now, the first of all, no one knew what Faces Magazine oh, yeah. was in the UK. <laughs> and secondly, to have been even one of the faces of 1987, that's great that your face was, was very 1987. <laughs> that's seven years ago. Oh, well, I mean, I've been Could have been worse. Could have been the face of 1984. <laughs> yeah. No, but that one, that's got longevity, hasn't it? Yeah, that's face true. The face of 1984 yeah. goes on forever. 87, <laughs> not first year Sylvester McCoy's Doctor Who, but we don't need to get into that. But I mean, I've been watching... We do. I met <laughs> Sylvester McCoy the other day. Did you? Yeah, He's I was my just doctor. getting out of a, uh, um, a, a, a toilet on the train. The door was just opening as we approached Milton Keynes. And who was standing there but Sylvester McCoy? <sighs> And Sylvester McCoy was waiting, and he had a slightly grumpy... He'd been up in Carlisle doing a science fiction convention, and then when he came back out, I was about to get off, and I, I thought, no, I'm going to... And I just said, uh, I thought, what shall I open with? I said, I'm a big fan of the work of the Ken Campbell Roadshow, because I thought, he's going to be expecting Doctor Who or something. Yeah. Ken Campbell Roadshow, pull out a different card. That's a sweet new look. He seemed very nice. Oh, he, I think he seems really nice. I've been watching a lot of RuPaul's Drag Race, so just go mm. back to the generation thing, so... We were the first year of New Generation Thinkers, so I call myself a season one queen, which oh, always yeah. has an extra bit of glamour, I think. You know, yeah. Original generation. It's OG. such a good point. But yeah. to be fair, that is when uh, it was still finding its feet, so I'm not sure I would. Wasn't, yeah, wasn't it all murky, the camera work? All the lighting was like there was... It's very soft focus. Yes. Very 80s glamour photo mm -hmm. style. Yeah. This is RuPaul's Drag Race. Yes. yes. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, we'll educate you afterwards. I'm 50. Uh, there okay. is no age limit no. to RuPaul. It's timeless. RuPaul okay. himself is 58, I think, mm -hmm. 57. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, wow. you know. Okay. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, if you'd said, oh, it's reality TV and I'm above that yeah. and it's, you know, just pointless drama yeah. and, and 
horrible edits. I'd be like, fair. You can't use age, though. <laughs> oh, no, I, but it's not about being above or beyond or any of those things. It literally is. I just... Uh, time now is so small every day. <laughs> you know, there's that, that great line which John Mortimer said when, when uh, I think in Summer of the Dormouse, where he talked about that once you're 80 years old, life is only breakfast. <laughs> and you wake up, you have breakfast, and then you go, oh, oh, it's it's 9 o'clock in the evening. I Oh, oh, there we go. And I really feel that, you know, every day I, I have grand ambitions and uh, I saw a bad zombie movie set in Paris instead the other day, and that was a mistake. And that was all the time you had for that day. Yeah, that yeah. was it. That Didn't was the even whole thing. That, you know, by the time I'd managed to... I, I had a couple of arguments on Twitter booked in, mm. so I had to get those <laughs> dealt with. And uh, and then half a film on Netflix, and then That's life was gone. Um, so we, we'll start mm. off actually on the four-dimensional human because that is partly what that is. This It is about the, the change in our... Well, our interactions, our experience of what it is to be human in a world where we are are, are plugged in to so many different conversations, and as, as you say quite early on in the book, there's well, there's this kind of sense that we are both surrounded by people, and yet we've never been more isolated. Yeah, there's. Uh, it was striking me when I was thinking about what digital life was doing to us, and the idea of the four dimensional human is that the fourth dimension is sort of the cyberspace, as we would call it back then, but just online life that we move into and live in this sort of other mode as well as our physical everyday lives but yeah the um the sense of this alone togetherness that's sort of a, a common irony and tension now of digital life and to me it felt like we were getting when we were all online together in social media it had some of like the intimacy and scrutiny of a village a village life but so little of the consolations it was like we had a lot of the proximity and people could examine you know pick through your every move everything you've said every idle thought you've had online and yet there wasn't really that cradle of support you know the the scrutiny would just come for a bit and then leave you, do you know what I mean mm. it wasn't the same group of people who were both being nosy and sort of looking after you do you know what I mean there's always mm. this mobile village ready to examine your life but then move on and you don't even get in the bad times the sort of support often so that was one of the tensions I was playing with we're getting so much of the lack of anonymity but I don't think we're getting quite as much of the sucker and consolation well that's it as you said no hiding place there is no yeah. and this I think has been a fascinating thing to to watch I don't know how you feel but about I mean you use social media and mm. um, you probably use some forms of social media which I haven't heard of because I'm 50 um, <laughs> but I that bit where the demands for you to either offer up an opinion, the fury if you... I mean, I, I had a thing the other day where uh, I had some people who um, are kind of, uh, you know, reasonably aggressive towards um, self-ID in uh, of, of, uh, of um, uh, sex gender. Uh, is that what you have to say? I, I always find, you know, that, that is problematic. Um, and they kept saying to me, Define a woman. Mm. And I said, I don't do... I'm not... I've not it's entered not this job. debate on uh, social media. I don't enter this debate yeah. on social media. I think it's become an extremely poisonous debate where previously people who could have sat down and talked, that you know, kind of both cis women and, and, and trans women could have... Yeah, that mm. now it's become just this 
fury. Yeah. And everyone has decided what that side looked like and who they are, and everyone has decided what that side looked like, who they are. And there's a huge number of people in the middle who are going, well, hang on a minute, we haven't got as big an issue with this, and I think we could sit down and, oh, no, we can't talk anymore, can we? Because yeah. everyone has turned into a monster. Well, it's, it's not just a fact of having to have an opinion on everything, but it's the assumption that you should have the time to form, like, to... So when the Liam Neeson stuff came out... And I say stuff because I still didn't read the full article or go into it because I have other things in my life happening and I don't have time to put aside for every little bit of gossip that comes out on Twitter. Now, I get that it sparked conversation that probably needed to happen and was really important, but I had a lot of people saying to me, oh, what do you think about the Liam Neeson thing? And I was like, well, I, I, I don't know because I haven't, I don't, all I've got is a is a soundbite to go on and I, I have an opinion on that, but then in 10 minutes' time, you could say, well, actually, here's more context. And then I'd go, oh, okay, that's slightly changed my opinion. And then you'd go, well, here's more context from someone else. And then I'd go, oh, okay, so can I not just wait until mm. the, the opinion is fully formed? Or, you know what, even just sit back and let let the people that affects the most, you know, mm. have that space and voice. But that- my voice doesn't need to be heard in that conversation. I can use it to, you know, uh, echo other people's mm. or at least uh, amplify them, but... I don't. I feel like I shouldn't have to have a say in everything that happens. But that's one of the models of sort of how the how social media economy is run, isn't it? That we're that part of um, how it generates traffic and ad revenue and all of that is the engagement and being asked not really of our opinions often, but our feelings on things. And you see, even from a commercial point of view, like have you noticed how you're constantly asked now to rate things or survey mm. every experience almost as soon as it's happened. I mean, the very simple example is sort of Uber. You're immediately like, is this a four-star ride, a five-star ride? You get groceries delivered to your door. You have to sort of rank the politeness of your driver on a scale of, you know, excellent to disappointing. There's a constant drive to survey. and it's, You know, it's almost as though we can't have an experience without adding this um, rating onto the end of it. Mm. And there's a real commercial... Um, impetus for that. And I think that's bleeding into social life and, and demanding that we have, do we find this opinion of Liam Neeson horrendous? Or, you know, do you agree with it on whatever scale you want to go with? You have to sort of peg yourself down to everything that's happening and have an emotional response to it. Mm. That's really quite um, exhausting, I think. Well, how much, I mean, the, the kind of destruction of, of nuance, because that's why, one of the reasons, you know, I didn't, when these people suddenly said, we demand to know your opinion on this, one of the reasons I don't is that I think a, a 280 character uh, medium, or even a, a longer one than that, uh, in which already everything that you write is read in a voice that has been presumed. I mean, I'm, I'm sure, you know, both of you find whenever you're writing things, there is a point where you sometimes, I, I don't know, on social media, I mean, for novels mm-hmm. or for scripts, whatever, there's a point you have to pull back and think, oh, I know know how this is read but that's because I live in my head Mm. how can I detach myself from the you know so I can see the possible different subjectivity that is rare I I mean I found it very hard the last book that I wrote was the first draft was diabolical it was (laughs) I I said it was it was like a five-year-old writing Finnegan's Wake it was just chaos um and part of it was because I knew exactly how it would be read Mm. but that's if I did the audible book and nothing else existed um so that to then cut that down to 280 characters where people have already, first of all, the side which they're on is playing a part in it, that, that death of nuance seems to have had a level of damage, a, a quite extreme damage to public discourse. And, yeah, in Picnic Comma Lightning, I call this uh, one of the things that's happening in this, the idea of the press release emotion, which is when we're writing something now, if we know it's going to be online, we have to sort of be able to predict um, and 
like a limitless audience for it of all mm. different sorts of people. So you end up, the danger is you end up sounding like the prime minister coming out to the lectern and just very sort of, you know, condemning this, condemning that, or just very basic sort of sentiments because anything else that strays from that could just get pounced on. So there is a bland, it can create a sort of a, a banality effect of people's willingness to say things. But I noticed when I was writing this that there's, it, your sentences... Um, you have to think about generalization and who am I really talking to? And I think the more we, the deeper we go into digital life, we'll have to develop a whole new grammar for how we express our intimate feelings because a lot of our intimate feelings are really tactless. Like if we're in the affluent West, we have so such privilege, and yet if we sort of tweet something about, say, complaining about some something in our lives that's really affecting us compared to the audience around mm. the world that could be reading it. It sounds preposterous. So it's managing the, the tactlessness of our lives. Yeah, it's like the hashtag first world problems. Ex- exactly. Thing, yeah. How do we find a vocabulary to say how, how something really local to us is making us feel without it being really crass in some way to other people? Do you know what I mean? Mm. I think that, that to me is the bit that a lot of people are trying to deal with and understand now, which is the kind of muscular nature of the hypocrisy of people, which is that you may well have an awareness. Some people have an awareness of, you know, hypocrisy. You know that there's certain individuals you will defend more when there are accusations against them, for instance, mm-hmm. because you like their music or you like what they wrote or you know them or all of those different things. Mm-hmm. But I think what we've seen online, and I think even more so, I mean, in, in some ways, Picnic Common Lightning looks more than four-dimensional human because really in the last five years, that bit of going, how are you allowed? I know it's kind of Dunning-Kruger and cognitive distance, but sometimes it's so overt, the bit where you go, but if Barack Obama did that or if this person did that, they would be destroyed. And yet you cannot see that you are holding so, you know, such a number of vastly contradictory judgments on, on people. And and that, I think, is the bit where we're seeing in, in UK politics, we see it in Australian politics, we see it in, in, you know, a lot of the English language world, that I've been, you know, you'd go, whoa, something's gone really weird. And was this always there? Or has the ability to create a small army of your own through immediate connection uh, meant, actually made people stronger in their ability to have these contradictory... Um, judgments in their head well i think also when it comes to pointing out other people's hypocrisy um i don't know if it's just twitter but we've, we've come to a point where i feel that we only tend to communicate with people via logic like we we see things as very binary and then we go well you're being hypocritical therefore you're wrong and and we're forgetting the fact that we're all an emotional species which is why we end up in messes but also why we end up with good you know because we we act on feeling and emotion um, there's a, a uh, I'll have to look it up so you can insert it later. But there's um, there's a wonderful interview with uh, with a guy on a podcast called uh, Love and Radio, and um, he basically he goes around. He's he's a a black man and he goes to prisons and talks to members of the KKK, and his whole thing is he he never goes in with the idea of changing their minds or converting them his whole thing was he wanted to understand why people he's not a musician as well is he, he is a musician. i saw that documentary there's a documentary about him as well on on uh, probably on netflix yeah yeah yes. i've seen that very it's interesting yeah because some of the people from black lives matter have uh have some kind of you know it's interesting the different issues around that yeah uh, 
in 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 because he has every now and again managed to persuade people that that was and, and that's yeah. it and the, the reason that he manages to is that he never goes in with the intention to he goes in to try and understand them more because he finds understanding it makes it easier for him to oh here we go yeah daryl davis daryl yes. davis yeah um so daryl davis would go into these prisons he talked to members of the kkk and he said he goes in and he just tries to befriend them and and obviously a lot of them don't want to befriend him because he's black. But he just sort of goes in and asks them questions about themselves and, and, and just keeps trying to find out more about their lives. And it's he's not there to tell them about himself. He's there to understand them and what brings them to their conclusions. And he found that just over time with, with a few of them, the fact that he was giving them the respect to say, I, I'm interested in you and I want to know you as an individual and what makes you tick? And how did you get where you are? And tell me about your life. Tell me about your upbringing. And then he found that naturally, because it's how conversation goes, they would go, well, how, how did you grow up? What, what's your upbringing? Mm -hmm. And then they would sort of form this weird friendship. Mm -hmm. And that's what helped them sort of cross these boundaries and work out where each other was coming from. Unfortunately, Twitter makes it very hard to do it's that. It's almost the opposite style of interaction, mm -hmm. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I have seen it happen. I've seen a few yeah. things where the, where the conversation continues in a thread. Yeah. And you'll see that rare beauty of someone going, oh, I'm wrong. Sarah Silverman has achieved yeah. that. Yeah, with her, yeah. her show I Love America, I think. And she has a convert now who's a sort of a, a really strident Trump supporter. Um, and he's now sort of, he sort of always comments on Sarah Silverman's uh, tweets when she's getting in trouble from other people saying, I used to think this, but Sarah and I talked about it. And it was a case, as you were saying, mm. of a real dialogue that can happen over social media. So it can be hard to generalise, but I think the, the overall the form is quite combative more than yeah. um, connective. Well, we've lost the art of mediation. Mm. And I remember in high school, that was a big thing. You could be a mediator. That was something you were uh, almost like being a prefect, being a mediator. Yeah. Like yeah. that You were the kid in school where other kids had fights. They came to you. Yeah. And it wasn't as like... I don't know, um, soft as going to a teacher yeah. and <laughs> dobbing on them or whatever. But if you went to, my brother was a mediator. He's like six foot something basketballer, you know, very athletic. So for, you know, year eights to go to him and be like, yeah. like it was like the jock who was yeah. like, okay, cool. Let's talk about this. Let's sit down and all right, what's your problems? What? We need those people again. Well, now often people who intervene, are, they're not mediating, but they might be filming the event. You know, that often mm. happens. And that's what's really interesting in this book mm. is this ability uh, that we suddenly have to be instant camera people. You know, and that's a completely new superpower. People like when you write about digital, digital life, often uh, commentators might say, haven't we always felt a bit sort of um, pressed for time and bombarded with messages? In 1890, people were feeling the pace of life was... Uh, too much for them. So is this really that new? And I'm like, no, it really is new that we have these tiny video cameras on us at all times. That is a real social game changer. So this ability that we have not to mediate, but to capture the reality of a moment if there's mm. a fight on a street or a racist tirade, just to be able to hold that up. And that is a form of accountability. But as we're seeing now, the, the ability that we have to record the moment isn't necessarily making us believe in things anymore like what struck me is that we have all this ability to document and record what actually happened and yet isn't our culture getting more and more skeptical about the truth that we can't we don't even feel we can believe what we're seeing you know how do those two things go together that we can say this is what happened there's 
you know, video documentary evidence of it. And yet people are like, well, who knows what to believe? How can we have those two things at once? Mm. Well, that is, yeah, as you said in your book, where you use the term, that's grammable. Yeah. Which is to see a certain thing and go, oh, yeah, that's going to be on my Instagram account. Mm. You know, when I when I saw a Jacob Epstein bust of Joan Greenwood, the great actor from Kind Hearts and Coronets, I immediately thought that's grammable. Yeah. <laughs> that's how 50-year-old things are grammable <laughs> when they're in the Ulster yeah. Museum. But but that that is a very, because that's one of the other things where people will offer evidence where you go, again, in certain debates where they go, don't you know what these people are like? Look at these screen grabs of what some of them have said. And you go, well, of course, we've always been able to. So that's the bit where I think the danger is for the dogmatist, these are grand times. Yeah. For, for for the sceptic, for yeah. the people of kind of, you know, a, a, a liberal bent who are trying to look at all angles, then this is the bit where you worry because you go, well, I can't yet make a judgment but other people, that's why I never do things, you know, question time or whatever. Because the people will always win because they don't care about the truth. They'll just mm-hmm. say, this is my truth and deliver it. Well, I'll go, oh, oh, hang on a minute, I need to just Google that because I don't think that's a... F- oh, no, hang on. And I've always found that, that bit where you go, to try and be fair, yeah. to try and actually have an accurate view, there's no time for the accurate view. Right. You know, it is like that newspaper thing which goes, here is my truth and that's it. Yeah. And it's solid, that truth, until the next week where you write a totally polar opposite truth, but it doesn't matter. The previous truth has been erased, and now this is the ultimate truth. Yeah, mm. and that creates huge scepticism, which is, you know... And also, um, you know, have you heard of deep fake technologies, which is the way you can get sort of... Um, through sort of AI and machine learning, you can have people like have uh, Barack Obama say something that he never said and people wouldn't be able to tell the difference. You, you can sort of manipulate his voice to say anything or even his image to the extent that um, two uh, lawyers wrote into the New York Times just earlier last year, I think, and saying that soon video and audio evidence may be inadmissible in court. Wow. Because And that's a really um, dangerous time to be in mm. when you can't really trust uh, this kind of evidence. And we already know you can't trust eyewitness accounts either because that's, oh, man, this is... It's best for us all just to stay in a corner. Everyone gets their own corner. Don't leave it. You know, I think of that sometimes. I think about when I was a kid because I was, you know, growing up where there was still this sense that, you know, nuclear... Armageddon maybe around the corner, you know, there were TV plays like Threads and The Day After and you'd see the mushroom cloud. And I used to imagine just living in my little kind of, you know, bunker. And I'm beginning to shop around for bunkers again. In fact, I noticed it's getting harder to get a bunker. About five years ago, there was a smashing-looking bunker up in Scotland, but that's gone. And there's only tiny little bunkers that won't fit my whole family. And there's only three of us, and I just don't think I can choose. So I mean, I, I think won't... they definitely choose that I was left out. I'm yapping, <laughs> you know, you need a bit of peace. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they don't want me in there. I thought I'd start stockpiling, um, but because I shop so little, my version of stockpiling was to buy four tins of tomato soup and a tin of spam. Yeah. And my friend said, "Well done, Bake. You've done minimum shopping." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And this is your stockpile. Yeah, yeah, that's my stockpile. But my my dad, uh, my dad and my stepmom are building an off grid house right in the middle of nowhere in Australia, oh, and that, yeah. that's not because they're paranoid or anything it's just my dad's always uh been very environmentally conscious and he he's always wanted to be able to sort of live without leaving a footprint mm-hmm. um and so he, he that's always been his dream and they're, they're finally doing it you know it's on solar power it's got massive rainwater tanks the toilet even the upstairs toilet is um 
uh, do you call them long drops here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So basically, it's that it's um, it still looks like a really nice normal toilet you get in the bathroom, but as soon as you open the lid, it is a long, long way drop. Down. Yeah, a long way down. You wouldn't want to drop your phone down there. <laughs> oh yeah, I take my glasses off before going because I, <laughs> yeah. I always worry every time I do Glastonbury and I look down at those long drops and I think because I, I heard oh, there's a, I think we I won't tell you about some of the stories I heard about <laughs> what can happen in the long drop. There's a man who apparently used to kind of holiday there between Thursday and Sunday. He, you know, the uh, as they say. Saying uh, things to in Denver when you're dead. He was a fico freak. Oh. Uh, I'm not a fico freak. I had one bit. I had one tiny bit. <laughs> That's Treat Williams in that. Um, uh, one more thing, just on. We haven't really touched that. Much. Picnic. Oh yeah. My whole is... conclusion there is, I might move and live with them. But I yeah. think that's an interesting thing where you, you talk about this uh, and also, oh man, I forgot the name of the book now. It's a guy uh, who's written a book called something like Beyond Our Head and it's about trying to detach ourselves from this. I, f- I've, I've, I forget his name now. And he talks about in the introduction the luxury of silence, that silence mm. has become a luxury good, that as you walk around... Every, you know, he talks about the fact that even the trays, when you're putting your stuff through security in an airport, very often have an advert in the bottom of them, so you don't notice that you left something in there. And then you look mm. at the wall, and there's an advert there, and there's an advert oh. there. And he said, and he talks about, you know, there's this first class lounge in, I forget which airport it is, where he says, you know, and one of the reasons to go into that lounge is there's silence. Mm. You know, people, if you can afford to go first class on a train, one of the reasons is for the quiet. You want it quieter, mm. you know. So the luxury yeah. of not hearing the cacophony and you kind of talk a little bit about that luxury of silence well what i like about how you just described that robin is that you were describing a visual thing in terms of noise and Mm. i think that's a really you know you're saying looking in an advert is a is a kind of like breach of your silence and when you think about how we talk about um on the internet uh the on social media if you mute people you're really just muting their text you know we're beginning to see sort of visual stuff as a form of noise but also yeah the proliferation of advertising in the in our current form of of sort of the internet is just uh, is too much i mean can we just talk a bit about the idea of the influencer because this is a figure who's really come up in the last few years and i think it's a really strange idea you know there used to be a a word in the culture called selling out and that really has gone now you know Mm. this sense that a private person can all can intersperse within their daily life these paid advertisements maybe maybe it's the way we have to fund ourselves now that the middle class economy is is collapsing but the idea of everyone being potentially an influencer Mm. is a really strange idea and to be influenced you know if you look at Shakespearean times influence was rarely a happy or dignified condition to be influenced by someone else it's quite a sinister thing that people were suspicious of influence and Mm. the name influencer is so audacious it said I will try and wield my power wield my power over you Um, and yet you know should we be influenced by one another and should corporate commercial life just be so interwoven with daily life so you can follow someone on Instagram and you're not sure if they like this recipe because it has maple syrup in it or are they being paid by the maple syrup lobby. I think that is really corrosive to mm. our sense of um, public life and, and also trusting people's genuine opinions from people's paid opinions. I don't think we can have this meld of the commercial and the private and, and keep a sense of authenticity. What well, that's think? in the Far Island documentary. I presume, have you seen the Far Island documentary? Have you seen mm, this? Yeah. You know, and I, I can't remember if we talked about this on the, the, on the show Festival. before. But yeah, yeah, the, yeah, that, yeah. that Far Festival. So yeah, the, the, that, that whole thing where people begin to say, well, the influencers are complicit and they should be taken to court as well because they told us, we, I mean, it really is the worst group of human beings. So it's such a, if you've, if you've not seen it, I highly recommend it. For the first five minutes, you go, I don't know if I can spend two hours with these people. And then it becomes so grotesque. I don't know mm. if you felt where, and then you find 
find out that every even people you go, actually, that one seemed like a decent person. The people who seem decent only seem decent because the level of <laughs> arseholism <laughs> is so grandiose mm. that you go, oh, well, that person's less of a... You know, those those people who go around saying when they're actually, for those who don't know, it was basically it was a festival that was meant to be the greatest uh, luxury celebration of Blink-182 that had ever occurred on the planet Earth. And uh, it was not that. It ended up being hurricane tents and no food and all of this. Um, you have the people who paid this luxury amount of money basically going, oh, we wanted to make sure the tents remained our tents, so we pissed on all the ones that were around us and ripped them up. And you go, no one here comes mm. out. And you go, I think they were the real victims. Well, the one group of people do and that's the people who actually lived on the island and were kind of yeah. financially screwed as they did all the work of building the stuff yeah mm. which fortunately they but that was a great example you know people thought they were buying into this thing they saw the glamorous influencers mm. say wow come into our world but even that documentary was a, a practice in damage control because the um the netflix one was funded by the um um this is a swear i don't know if i yeah, but yeah, yeah. The, so the um the social media company that that worked for them is called Fuck Jerry, um, and they're the ones that sort of largely took care of all the social media. They also funded the Netflix documentary, which is why there's a nice little bit about how oh yeah they screwed us over too. Like right, the oh just before it all kicked off, we we weren't involved anymore. No, they they left out. We have no idea what was going on. There's another documentary on uh, Hulu, which. Um, you can find in various ways in the UK, and uh, and that one I still I think both documentaries are very good because they both cover very different things and give you some depth on each other like from different angles. But um, the Hulu one they've actually got Billy McFarlane they they've actually got him to interview the organizer wasn't the organizer yes yeah. yeah, so they've actually got him in the interviews. But also there's a guy who worked for Fuck Jerry who's talking about how. No, no, they they were complicit in this as well. And then if you look into them and their backs, basically their whole um, thing on Instagram, they've got like, I don't know what it's at now, but they had about 15 million followers on Instagram and probably Facebook and that sort of thing. And they're like Unilad in that they just would post other people's content and build and build and build and build. And that way they could then put ads and they say, look, our audience is 15 million or whatever. But what they were doing was just taking people's content without permission, without credit. Mm -hmm. They were just stealing people's videos and pictures and stuff like that. And then when people contacted them and said, well, at least credit me, like you didn't even ask. Mm -hmm. And then they would just fob them off. It wasn't even a case of like, oh, our bad. Like they were acting like privileged teenagers just going like, well, it's mine. I saw it, so it's mine. And they call themselves curators. But they're stealing. They're just stealing content from other people. So now there's been this big thing called hashtag fuck fuck Jerry where people are trying to encourage other people because a lot of people don't realise they follow the account because it is a lot of funny content that just doesn't belong to them. Yeah. So they, they went down by a couple million followers, I think, after that, which is kind of big. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man, another day of my middle-aged naivety. <laughs> uh, it's, yeah, it's fascinating. That, that, that thing about the stelium content, I think, is a really interesting because that, again, in, in the comedy world, it's a very simple thing where you see, and this has changed mm. over time, uh, but when someone steals a joke and sometimes people say, hey, look, a joke's a joke, you know, write another and you go do you know what why didn't you write one in the first place this is you know yeah, that bit where yeah. it's very easy to say and then also to say well in many ways we're helping you you know we live in an increasing culture where our the commercialization of our creativity is something which is expected that we'll give it for free and don't worry everything's an advert for you mm. and what's an advert for well you'll be able to have more of your stuff taken and used for free 
Yeah. And there's, is there any point that I earn money from it? Well, well no, but you it's, it's a good a effort. And it goes on yeah. and on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the brand thing. Um, I will, we better quickly mention, so because Picnic, Common Lightning is... Uh, um, it's a fascinating book, and it's. Um, I don't know if I, I do, I'm going to find out how. I don't know how much longer we've got because there's so much that I want to talk about uh, on on this because uh, it's one. The title is fantastic. The title makes the good thing about reading Picnic, Common Lightning. If you do, you know where the title comes from? No. Right? I didn't until I saw him talk about it and then read the book. Right. So it's one of those book titles which very cleverly means that you can seem rather smart merely by talking about it because it's a quote from Lolita. Uh, ah, it's Humber Humber, isn't it? Talking it about is. the death of his mother. Yeah. And it's a beauty. And, and it means that when you, you, you think, oh, it's just a new book called Picnic Common Lining. And you think, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the funniest, uh, like, brackets in all of literature, I think. Um, Humber Humbert's describing the death of his mother, and he says, my very photogenic mother died when I was three. And then he just puts brackets, picnic, comma, lightning, and brackets. And that's all he mentions oh, of his wow. mother's death in yeah, the whole yeah. book. Um, to me, I read it. I gasped. I Did thought. you say his very attractive mother? Photogenic. Oh, photogenic. Because attractive, very... I was like, oh, because the lightning was attractive. Oh, but... interesting. Well, I like photogenic. A friend points it out to me. It's like because all he had of her was photographs because he was so little when she oh, died. So my yeah. very photogenic mother died when I was three. Picnic, comma lightning, and it was just so mm. darkly comic and perfect and bleak and somehow painful as well. Yeah. And the fact that he's trying to sort of fence it in in the brackets like just try and hold it at at bay but as soon as you hear that a whole scene for you of this sort of picnic and Mm. the gathering storm clouds come so i love the sense that it's like repressed but also it it sort of explodes out of the page i immediately Mm. saw that's the annoying is the first time you mentioned that is that moment in the piano uh, Jane Campion's piano, where you have suddenly, do you remember? There's a little bit of. Uh, it might have even been. Is, is the father killed by lightning in that? I can't oh, remember. I can't remember because there's, there's a great little anime. Have you seen the piano? No, I haven't. There's, uh, um, you'd love it. It's from the Southern I Hemisphere, know, just like you. You'd love it. You'd Anna love Paquin. it. Uh, yes, yeah. yeah, she's she's Hi, got a big break. Yeah, Holly Hunter's fantastic. Uh, it, it it was one of the uh, trilogy of films that Harvey Keitel did, where he suddenly has a bit where he goes. Oh, and brings out a weird noise. He does that in Bad Lieutenant and one other one. There's moments where he had three films in a row where he was nude making weird noises. Oh, yeah. And that very much became a genre in itself. <laughs> you can buy The Harvey Cartel Makes Weird Noises, an old DVD box set. Um, <laughs> but, it's, uh, but yeah, that, there's a lovely little bit of very simple, almost like brown paper animation. In, mm. in, in the piano in about the first 10 minutes when they're when Anna Paquin's talking about uh, what the events of their life and why they've ended up on this beach with this piano yeah no it's an amazing thing and I thought my uh, publishers are never going to go for this title it's too weird and in my title I spell out the comma so it's three words picnic mm. comma lightning and I just thought oh this will be a working title but they said they liked it. And there's something also, I think, about all the K sounds, which comedians say, tell me, is funny. So mm. picnic, comma, lightning. Um, it's sort of it's weird, but hopefully sticks in people's minds. But That's the, weird, though, because sometimes KKK, if you just say that, that doesn't seem as fun, does no, it? No, less so. Yeah, so there's different <laughs> they were rules going, I think on the K sound. I think they were going yeah. for. Yeah, just I think the K can... sound has to be attached to something after it if you just have the three Ks on their <laughs> or own. Or maybe just like, I don't know, not attached to racism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it, yeah. yeah. Here's a really fun title for our racist organisation group um but yeah in the book i want because i thought what you know i wanted to match um because my parents both died when i was in my early 30s sort of in within two years of each other and it was really horrendous and uh, horrific but also at, at around that time it was when you know web 2.0 is getting up and our we were questioning our realities in new ways and that what digital life was doing to our realities and i thought 
I wonder if I could write a book that tracks my personal um, dealing with a new reality of having no parents, but them seeming still such like real people in my life, my life, and our, our sort of adventures in the virtual world. So the book is sort of this two two part thing with sort of the memoir of grief and coming to di- coming to grips with um, the new reality of of being parentless, but also set against sort of the weird adventures of digital life. But that's what I love about both your books is that your ability to both grasp very contemporary ideas of communication but then attach it to, you know, the work of uh, Virginia Woolf and Henry mm-hmm. James. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think it creates a really, you know, the, 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 the landscape of, of kind of internal possibilities is beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, well, because my training, my academic training was in sort of comparative literature. So, and really it's just the, it's the Natasha Richards thing. Again, my brain just seems to be a pattern finder. So if I see something in digital life, I'm like, this reminds me of something I read in a in a Virginia Woolf book or a Dickens book, and there's something going on here. And then, yeah, I, that's sort of my what I try and add to the conversation because so many people have had, said brilliant things about digital life. But I thought if I can relate it back to maybe some older, more sort of fundamentally human ideas that we see in literature and philosophy, then that could be an interesting mix. So, like, what's the relationship between gifts that we look on a loop and Proust or something like that? Mm. We've run out of time. Just Aww. as we, fortunately, we got to the point of you mentioning a book, and yeah. this is the this is the latest we've ever managed to get to actually bring it up. Uh, <laughs> although we did talk a lot about four dimensional human as well, <laughs> and uh, but you're staying for the next one anyway, aren't you? so we can go through your books that you brought in a bag. Um, should we? You had a small reading. Would you like? Have we got yeah. time for a um, a quick reading? Uh, yeah, yeah, that would be lovely too. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll end on on, on okay. this. Okay, okay. So this is from the opening of Picnic, Comma Lightning. Death runs like radioactive iodine through your sense of reality, allowing it to be looked at in high contrast, its structures glowing. It has a way of making things very true, but also somehow less real. It's mercilessly true that today my parents never put their key in the front door, never walk into a room, never send birthday cards. They're never waiting at the airport. They don't sleep, they don't tap on the back of ketchup bottles or mispronounce words. At the same time, the truth that they don't do any of this feels less than real. I mean, just look, there they are. They have posthumous opinions on the news, they roll their eyes, I think up puns and my mother laughs at them. She's excited to hear that Lily Tomlin has a sitcom on Netflix. Ooh, great, she says, knowing impossibly about Netflix. Bereavement not only highlights the materials from which reality is made, but transports you into a new one. The change is as clean as a light flicking on or off. Funnily, both options are true. It can feel like the lights have gone up after a great party, while also being a plunge into the dark. Those who are precious to us migrate as fast as the flick of a light from the outside to the inside of life. They don't trip your senses by hugging you or by swinging into view over the crest of the road. You stop seeing that car, unmissable among all the others, even at a distance, with its two unmistakable thumbprint silhouettes side by side. Instead, they live at least part time in your mind's electrocharged darkness. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it's That's uh, amazing. Yeah, there was so much that I, when I read that, in terms of you know from my own experience, it was, it, you beautifully put the. Um, mm. Thank you very much thank to uh, Lawrence, who uh, four dimensional human uh, and Pitney Comet Lightning has just come out paperback. Has it? it? Paperback uh, in June. Yeah. 
Dwight paperback in June. Uh, my book, I'm a joke and so are you, is out of paperback next month. And it might even be out of paperback now. I don't know when, because we've got this clash between the real time that we're in now and the time in which this, this is yeah. Uh, but, uh, uh, and uh, Beck, you, are you doing uh, the Edinburgh Fringe this year? I am. And you've got Soho Theatre coming up? or uh, not Not booked in yet. Okay. We'll see how Fringe goes. So, yeah, Beck Hill, go, go uh, online and uh, the shows always have a, a fantastic flamboyant amount of imagination in there. <laughs> uh, so, and go and have a look at cosmicshambles.com. We've got lots of events coming up and uh, we've also got uh, lots of science bloggers and other bloggers as well. Uh, Dean Burnett uh, doing his, his brain yapping. Thanks very much for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Patreon.com slash bookshambles to support the show. Head to the live events page on the Cosmic Shambles website as well to find out where we're going to be with Robin and Signals, the play, and Dallas Campbell and Chris Lintot and Steve Pretty and all sorts of other things as well. Please do take a couple of seconds to go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and give us a five-star rating and a review. That really helps us out. And we'll be back next week with another new episode of Book Shambles. Until then, enjoy your week. Be good to each other. Bye-bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.